Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a great show for you this week, as always. Contributor Jim Arndorfer will be here for the first time on the Book and Film Globe podcast to discuss with me the new Dungeons and Dragons movie, Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. It's a fun fantasy romp, as they say. And Jim, a former D&D player, maybe a current D&D player, will be here to talk to me about it. Also, Matthew Ehrlich will be along to talk about the new season of Succession, a little show on HBO that you may have heard about. It's in its fourth and final season. But first, we're going to return to one of our favorite, well, I wouldn't say our favorite topics, but one of our most frequent topics here on the Book and Film Globe podcast, censorship. It appears that the works of Agatha Christie are going through the sensitivity reader gauntlet and are being changed and edited as we speak to remove anything offensive to anyone. And we find that whole process offensive and contributor Jamie Mason will be along in just a second to talk to me about it. We'll be right back. Bet you thought we were done talking about censorship on this show, but we're never done talking about censorship on this show because censorship is an ongoing project in the Western world, well, really in the world in general, but we mostly cover it in uh, English-speaking countries since we are mostly English-speaking contributors to this site. Uh, Jamie Mason speaks English and maybe a little French. He does live in Canada, I'm not sure. And he wrote for us uh, about uh, this week about... Um, the sensitivity reader movement has uh, has taken on Agatha Christie in the UK, and they have begun rewriting the classic novels of Dame Agatha Christie. Jamie is here. Hello. Hi, Neil. It's good to be back. Here we are again. Yeah. So what's going on with Agatha Christie? What are they doing to, to these books? Well, uh, of course, Agatha Christie is, is known and celebrated by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most uh, successful and best-selling fiction author of all time. Uh, over two billion books sold. Um, and these books are, they were written between the 1920s uh, and 1976, the year that she died. So during that time period, there was obviously a great, great deal of cultural change and evolution. Um, and so what the, uh, what the sensitivity readers have done is they have gone back and they have looked through Agatha Christie's books. And we're talking here about HarperCollins publishers. Uh, and they have actually done a, uh, let's, I don't want to call it a woke rewrite. Let's call it a, uh, a cultural activist rewrite, uh, since they're, they're, uh, they're eschewing the term woke these days. They figured out that it's not popular, but there's a culturally activist uh, rewrite that's been done on all of the uh, Hercule Poirot uh, and Miss Marple books, the entire run of both series that's now visible in the digital editions and will be moving into print. Uh, they're, they're removing uh, insults. They're removing some words. They're removing references to race and nationality and they're changing some descriptions. So this is this is what they're that they're trying to do with Agatha Christie's work. Yeah. So I mean, they're not changing the storylines, but they are substantially 
changing character descriptions. And look, Agatha Christie uh, is a product of her time and her place. And so she's sort of a, a late era British colonialist. And, you know, there's lots of sort of exoticism, Orientalism, as it were, in her books. But so what, right? People aren't drawn to those books because of the outdated descriptions of people in Africa or Asia or the Middle East or whatever. They like the whodunit formula, which she perfected. Right. Oh, she absolutely did. Um, you know, there's it's impossible to write any kind of mystery today without being influenced to one degree or another by Agatha Christie and her work. Um, the interesting thing is that this rewrite uh, was not occasioned by any great hue and cry about Agatha Christie's putative racism or colonialism. It's something that was undertaken unilaterally by Harper Collins uh, and it occurs to me, you know, based based on some of the stuff that I've written for Book and Film Globe uh, over the last couple of, of weeks and months, that the, the rewrite of Roald Dahl's work, uh, of Ian Fleming's work, uh, now of Agatha Christie's work, um, they're they're going back and and they're they're reworking sort of the the perennial bestsellers, you know, uh, and and that's that's an interesting strategy. It's a business strategy as well as one of cultural activism. Right. They're, they're reworking books from the past that people still actually read. They're obviously, they're not going deep into the backlist for books that have long since been remained or books that actually might be offensive, um, but have no readership. And they're also not, there's not a lot of reworking of, um, you know, quote unquote literature. They're not, they have not yet begun to rewrite Jane Austen or Charles Dickens or Joseph Conrad or uh, so on and so on, you know, Thomas Hardy, et cetera, right? That, that, that hasn't happened yet. Well, there, there was... It would be hard to. There, there, was, there was Pride and Prejudice with Zombies, which is one of my favorite rewrites. Um, but no, you're, you're... Well, there's a difference between... That's a, a, but that is obviously like a fresh work, a reinterpretation, so to speak, you know, uh, Sense and Sensibility and Sea Monsters. He also wrote that book. You know, those were fun. Um, but but that's that's different than um, well you know it ha it's happening in movies too you know you had the end of Greta Gerwig's Little Women where Joe like you know becomes a, a power a powerful publishing uh, magnet you know you ha you have you have like you're seeing these sort of reinterpretations of classics but it's still it's still not the same as going in and rewriting a book, you know, you're not writing like, you're not doing the, the new Poirot mysteries, you know, Poirot 2023, whatever <laughs> that would be. Then, then, then you do whatever you want. You know, Hercule Poirot's grandson is solving mysteries uh, around the world. And, and, and then those, uh, you can describe um, Egypt, however you want, if you want to write that book. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it, it, Pride and Prejudice with Zombies. It, it is a different thing. Uh, obviously, it's it's satire. I'm, I'm being a bit tongue in cheek, but I'll tell you, it's it's also different from some of the reworking that that has historically been done uh, with with classic literature. I I did mention Chaucer in one of my articles for you, and yeah, that's 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 a good rewrite that needs to happen simply because a lot of people don't speak uh, you know Middle English anymore. Um, but that's that is different from what's going on now. What's going on now is not an attempt to impose clarity. Uh, it's more of a, like, a, a, to use the term cultural activism again, 
it's there's 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 a kind of a, a culturally activist component to it and a political component. So it's it's very different from what's been done before and very different from satire, as you rightly point out. Right. Well, this isn't, you know, Seamus Haney, uh, you know, this shows how far we've fallen in 30 years, had a bestseller uh, with his rewriting of Beowulf uh, in the in the early 90s. Uh, but he and he was just trying to update the language a little bit and make the situations feel a little a little more relevant to contemporary writers. But it was a, a love letter to, uh, you know, a classic work of literature. And then I think about other reinterpretations, like there was that novel, um, Wide Sargasso Sea, that was very popular when I was in college. Um, you know, that was a reinterpretation of Jane Eyre. But again, that stuff is all open to, for business, as far as I'm concerned. You can do whatever you want. Um, you can have whatever take you want on literature. But, but going in and rewriting, especially as you said, there isn't even a demand for it. No one was asking for uh, a new... Uh, more uh, politically enlightened version of Death on the Nile, right? No one cares. So who are these people and why are they doing this to books? <laughs> well, that's that's the $30,000 question. And I think that it's, it's worth considering in terms of some of the changes that we're seeing in, in publishing overall. Um, you know, in addition to the, the culturally activist component, we also see... Uh, I think we're living in a time where literacy is so widespread, you know, say compared to the time of, of, of Chaucer or even Jane Eyre, uh, that you have, I think you have a lot of would-be writers and publishing professionals who want to get into the industry uh, who don't really have a way in. And certainly sensitivity reading uh, it's sort of a new venue that's opened up. It's uh, kind of a, you could say, sort of a make work project for um, for for new uh, new publishing interns and 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 would be publishing professionals. And I, I think that there's there's a there's a piece of that as well. Um, and I, I think also too, uh, publishers. They, you know, we 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 forget that there sometimes we can forget that they're businesses. And, you know, a lot of this cultural activism, wokeness, whatever you want to call it, it's being driven through the corporate sphere. Uh, and so what you have is yeah. you have businesses making these unilateral decisions uh, out of out of a desire to to preserve their 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 positioning within the publishing hierarchy and to avoid controversy preemptively. I think they're making the wrong decision because I think that public appetite for not for new works that represent contemporary sensibilities, those can be whatever they want, but for rewriting old works, I think that the public appetite for that is a lot less than they think. And I, I would like to see them shamed and exposed, although it seems like they're just doing it. They're just doing it and they're winning. And yeah, people are grousing about it on the internet or on podcasts, but but no one's doing anything to stop it. No one's saying, hey, this is a bad idea. Well, no, and, and certainly that, that seems to be, we, we see this, uh, this trend in, in businesses and across various industries. You know, it's, it's all sort of happening all at once. You have the, uh, the importation of uh, DEI training, uh, sexual and, and gender sensitivity training. Uh, we're rewriting books. Uh, you know, we're, we're adopting, say, rainbow logos for Apple or Ford during, you know, 
gay pride month or, or what have you. And so woke, woke capitalism, they, they call it. And look, this, this show does not uh, address any of those issues in any great length, but where it is touching on what we cover is the book industry. And so you're seeing, you know, you're seeing the left-wing version of the current movement to censor is sensitivity reading and rewriting uh, popular literature. And I don't care if it's going on and if people love it, I still think it's wrong. And we're going to continue to speak out against it on this show. And we're going to, you know, when, um, you know, this podcast will be the last thing standing um, when uh, the, uh, the nuclear winter comes and people, whoever survives will be able to listen to it and know that we were right. <laughs> That's what I think. Well, I, I hope so. <laughs> this is, this, this is my quest, Jimmy. Yeah, <laughs> I hope so. All right. Well, what's next? What are they going to rewrite next? Well, that's that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I I suspect that uh, maybe children's books might be next up on the block. Uh, we do know that there was some controversy with Dr. Seuss a while back. Uh, the the Dr. Seuss uh, yeah. uh, owners of that literary estate pulled, I think it was five Dr. Seuss titles. Um, we do see a, a trend in children's publishing. I was just in fact, I was just in the library the other day, and uh, there sitting prominently displayed on a bookshelf was uh, Ibram Kendi's uh, anti-racist baby children's book. Um, so I wonder if maybe they might not go back and take a look. Maybe at Winnie the Pooh. You know, that's that's certainly ripe. Clifford, the big multicolored nine, non-binary uh, dog. How about that? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, maybe Charlie Brown. Who Charlie, Charlie Brown. Uh yeah. Oh, because yeah, because you might have a peanut allergy. There you go. Yeah. All right. <laughs> this is turning into a drunken brawl, even though we're not drunk at the moment. Jamie, thank you so much. Uh, do not patronize the new boldlerized Agatha Christie novels. Read the old ones if you must. And you know we're going to continue talking about this as it develops. Thanks so much for stopping. My pleasure. On your knees. Okay, chop it off. Chop it off. Let's do it. Oh, we got him now. You know what? I'm thinking there are probably sharper stairs somewhere else. We're thieves, but we help the wrong person steal the wrong thing and unleash the greatest evil the world has ever known. The Red Wizards. This week's big movie opening is Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. It is an adaptation of D&D, Dungeons and Dragons, the popular Wizards of the Coast, now Hasbro fantasy role-playing game. You know, this had a potential to be a huge uh, intellectual property disaster, and uh, much to my surprise, I went to see it, and it was not. It was actually quite fun and quite entertaining, and I have recruited Book and Film Globe contributor Jim Arndorfer to pop in to the show today and talk to me about it. Hello, Jim. Hey, Neil. Hello. All right. So um, you are you a uh, you know you had uh, proposed a piece about fan reaction. D&D fan reaction uh, about this movie. And that piece did not come to fruition because everyone seemed to love it. So there was no, uh, there was no controversy other than a bunch of people saying, hey, this is, this is awesome. I, I, I'm guessing that you played 
D and D at some point in your life, if you were, if you were interested in this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, just by way of background, I started playing, uh, call it 1979, 1980. It was the uh, classic Holmes Blue Box edition, um, known for the uh, Red Dragon uh, fighting a knight and a wizard. Uh, yeah. Uh, so you played. You played. You played it when it was. You played it when it wasn't cool, basically. Oh, it couldn't have been less cool. Yeah. Uh, there were various, uh, you know, my chums made up various, uh, you know, acronyms for what D&D stood for, or rather uh, creative renditions of what D&D stood for. None of them yeah. uh, particularly. Uh, Dork, dorks uh, and know. dweebs at, at best. Yeah, that, that'd be at the kinder edge, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely a dork preserve. But, uh, you know, this was like, you know, early on when, you know, like like the Rankin and Bass uh, Hobbit cartoon was out and, you know, Lord of the Rings was in the background and, you know, for a young nerd such as myself being able to, you know, roll some dice and, you know, immerse myself in this, uh, you know, creation was, uh, it was pretty engaging and, you know, you yeah. quickly found like minded dorks and, uh, and you, you played. Know, you listened well, to, yeah. I'm, yeah, I was, played. I was the same genre of kid, you know, I had the monster manual and the advanced monster manual and I would, I would yeah. memorize the, I, the the monsters and then I, it kind of faded for me. I didn't play um, after I was about uh, thirteen and basically discovered uh, girls. Um, uh, they didn't, didn't didn't discover me till a few years after that. But uh, I, I kind of lost interest. But you know, it's interesting that Dungeons and Dragons now. I mean, I wouldn't say it's it's quote unquote cool, um, but you know, they have that. There's that uh, YouTube show Critical Role where these these sort yeah. of like people who are way better looking. That anyone I ever played yeah. D&D with are like playing D&D and turning it into like a hit YouTube show. So it's not really a surprise that Honor Among Thieves kind of comes out in this environment where, you know, post uh, House of the Dragon, Game of Thrones and many Lord of the Rings movies, suddenly like fantasy is no longer really the realm of mega nerds. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, I think, you know, Dungeons & Dragons definitely was, uh, you know, undergirded a lot of that development and everything from, you know, video game development, call it, to, you know, providing a steady stream of, you know, nerds that would become creators or fans, and it just kind of hit critical mass with some of the things you've mentioned um, right now, and uh, yeah, they're going to the, the granddaddy of, uh, of, you know, fantasy over the past call it 50 years or so. so right. So, so let, yeah, it, it's interesting to see. So let's talk about the movie, right? So this is sort of the, the uh, apotheosis of Dungeons and Dragons culture. The movie stars Chris Pine as a roguish, he's not really a, it's called honor among thieves, but he's a kind of a thief by accident. He's a Harper, which is like a spy good guy who runs afoul of some bad wizards um, and ends up basically pulling, pulling together uh, a team of uh, brigands, uh, which always happens in D and D, and they include uh, Michelle Rodriguez as like a tough thief, and then uh, Will Smith's son plays a a callow young sorcerer. There's kind of a cute sh female shapeshifter, and then uh, the Rage uh, Jean Page, uh, the Duke from Bridgerton, plays a very handsome and morally upright paladin. And basically, it's like your typical mishmash of like D and D characters, and I'll be damned. If the movie, I mean, it's not a great movie, but if it doesn't like mimic what it's actually like to go on a D and D campaign, like there's just a bunch of like 
random quests and funny fights with like with monsters and soldiers and whatnot. I mean, I think that's pretty much what it is, right? It's just like a D&D quest turned into a movie. It's, it's quite clever in the way it does it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it hits all the tropes, right? I mean, you know, various backstories, people meeting in bars, people hearing uh, tell of a, you know, item they need to successfully complete the quest. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's all there. And, you know, some of the, you know, settings are borrowed, um, you know, from the Forgotten Realms campaign uh, setting. And then, you know, one, one thing I like is just, you know, they traverse across, you know, really an impossible mismatch of uh, biomes and topographies, you know, which right. you know, here's, like, a, here's like, a random frozen wasteland. Here's a lush forest. Here's a, you know, this beautiful field, et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, it hits all the tropes, right? And there is a dungeon. They go into a dungeon for quite a while. They go in, they do, <laughs> they do. Uh, yeah, you know, there's like, you know, a ridiculous, complicated uh you know trap slash uh bridge that they need to get over or think they need to get over um yeah i mean it just it just hits all those things really well so i, I you know i it's i think it's entertaining for someone that uh, has not played if you have played it you know unless you're you know virulently angry about easter eggs i think most of the stuff to bring uh you know smile to anyone who's played over the past few decades there's a yeah there are and there are cool monsters you know there's there's definitely like uh an assortment of of classic monsters from the games um it really you know and it and it's also just uh it really does not take itself very seriously i mean the 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 movie is is full of quips it's just quip quip central i was being ironic i find irony is a blade that cuts he who wields it most especially you're not a lot of fun are you yeah, I, I think they did a good uh, job balancing that, right? I mean, I don't think it was like Love and Thunder overboard, but uh, it was it, was, it hit the right hit the right balance, I, I think. Because um, I mean, humor's always been part of the game. I mean, they, you know, I mean, if you remember the old books, I mean, they had cartoons in there, they had jokes in there. I mean, you have, you know, if, if a monster that takes the form of a treasure chest and will devour you is not an element of a game that take itself over seriously so i mean no I, I, I do think you know so i mean as i was uh you know dipping into various fan pages i, I was surprised that um you know the reception was well that ape you know there was not a anti-contingent uh that was really strong it seemed a lot of people were really looking forward to it and you know there's some on the margins who think it's too serious you know not serious enough da, 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 da. and well there's certainly room for that i mean like you know if, if you look at the core of like, you know, 12 year olds playing this game, there was not a great deal of seriousness. So it was, yeah, no, I, I think it hit, I think it hit the right balance for sure. And I think it, you know, you mentioned 12 year olds. It basically is a movie for 12 year olds. You know, there's no blood, <laughs> there, there's no blood. There's Correct. no nudity. Yeah. You know, it's not, it's not, yeah. this is not game of Thrones. You know, this, this no, is, no. this is like a campy eighties movie basically come to life. Right. And, you know, you and I, you and I grew up in, in an era where like, the theaters were full of like kind of cheesy uh, sci-fi and fantasy genre movies. And I think there, we've been talking, we've talked about this on the show before. There's kind of a return to that. Um, and, you know, I, I welcome it because I, I have a, an affinity for, you know, for like well-made trash. And I would say that this movie is very well-made trash. So, so let's, let's talk about real quick. Let's some of the performances. Well, Hugh Grant is in this quite a bit. He plays yeah. this kind. Of, he's not, yeah. I guess he's the bad guy, but he's not really that bad. He's like this roguish con man. Um, 
And uh, he, you know, he steals every scene that he's in and is always fun to watch. I thought Chris Pine was, you know, was less annoying than usual and, you know, gave, didn't take his part too seriously. I thought Michelle Rodriguez was particularly good, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Yeah. You know, no, like agree. actually acting. Yeah. You know, she wasn't playing her character from the Fast and the Furious movies. She was actually acting and uh, and, and was quite funny, playing playing sort of the the muscle of of the group. Yep. And I also I also really liked the guy from Bridgerton. Uh, there's been some mixed reaction to him, but I thought he was he was incredibly charming and and kind of funny in a straight man kind of way. Yeah, he pulled it off. You know, I mean, it, it's you know, it's the joke that the paladin is, uh, you know, humorless and uh, you know, kind of one direction. And I think he did a nice, uh, nice twist on that. So yeah, no, I yeah, I I, I was uh, pleasantly surprised by Chris Pine and uh, yeah, I mean Hugh Grant, um, you know, clearly enjoyed chewing up the scenery. Uh, I'm sure he enjoyed the paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> And you know none of the care, and he could be back for the sequel. I mean, there's gonna be there's gonna be more. There's gonna be more of these movies. I think we're we're just entering the beginning of D and D content. Um, I, or, so I guess the question is, are you going to start playing again? You know, you're. Oh man, yeah, that's that's the question. I don't know. You know, I mean, I've you know I uh, will confess to have you know picked up some you know stray pieces at used bookstores over the years to mm-hmm. create a you know. Campaign. Smaller version of the library. Once had, I don't take uh, you know pictures of them and post them on uh, you know various Facebook groups uh, to show off my latest shelfie. But I don't know. You know, can't you can't rule anything out, right? But uh, have have not yet. If if it included like an eight hour poker tournament in the middle of the campaign, I think I, would, <laughs> I think I would do it. Possibly less stressful than poker, but yeah, you know, it's uh, possibly it, nothing, nothing could be more stressful. <laughs> <laughs> so, Correct. so yeah. Um, well, regardless, um, Dungeons and Dragons is back, and uh, you all have to deal with it. Um, I give—I don't give Honor Among Thieves my highest recommendation um, for for a movie, but it—it it, it is. Um, if you love D and don't see how you're not going to like this movie. Totally. No, I strong agree. Uh, I did watch the. Uh... God, the Jeremy Irons movie the other night, and man, that is bad. Oh, the two thousand, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that wasn't yeah. a good time, but that wasn't a good time for like this kind. You know, superhero movies were totally, bad in yeah. two thousand two, unless they were, you know, maybe the stray Batman movie or something. So that was not a great time um, for this kind of movie. But I think we have entered the people who were making those movies didn't know what they were doing. Whereas I feel like. Yeah. Now we have a, a realm where the people who grew up playing D and D and have some talent are like in charge of the IP. Right. Yeah. And the you know the technology you know kept you know in better now. Um, to your point, just the storytelling chops are better now. I mean, I think people. Yeah. Yeah. Strong agree on that. And just, you know, if you want if you want to look at how a you know, D and D movie they took itself seriously could look like. I mean, I think, I think you're looking at that. But you know, again, Jeremy Irons got paid, so. Yeah. All right. Well, don't stick your hand in a gelatinous cube this uh, this week. Don't do it. Yes. I'll stay away from the green slime and, uh, you know, fruit jellies and others. So, yeah, you got to do your best. All right. All right, Jim. We're not nerds. We're not nerds at all. Thanks for talking. All right, man. Take care. I got a huge deal. I got the election. I got a 10. I've got plenty on my plate.
He's on the floor, Tom. Explain me what he's doing. He's moseying, terrifyingly moseying. It's like if Santa Claus was a hitman. We were cut out behind our backs. But there's a shape for things for us. We partner up with Sandy and Stewie, with Pierce. Death wrestling ogres. Excited to get into this knife fight? Let's blow it up. I'm not authorized to let you take off. It's that. You know, in Buddhism, sometimes your greatest tormentor can also be your most perceptive teacher. Mm -hmm. Hey, Buddha, nice Tom Forts. There's a night of the long knives coming. I need a fire breather. You want help with maths? You really want me? I need you. The fourth and final season of HBO's Succession has begun, and... They announced the final season before it started that it was going to be the final season, and I think that uh, that really ramped up interest. And now, now people are are starting to lay bets on who is going to win the uh, the Game of Thrones, so to speak, uh, of the Roy media family. Uh, who is going to finally succeed Logan Roy in the chair, or if anyone? And uh, you know, this is something that uh, all the people who like quality TV are discussing. And no one likes quality TV more than Matthew Ehrlich, our TV critic, <laughs> and he's here to talk to me about the final season of Succession. Hello, Matthew. Hi. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, at the end of the third season, I've watched all – I haven't actually seen uh, the first episode of season four but uh, because we, we kind of come and go out of our HBO subscription. But I have seen all, all the three previous seasons. And at the end of the third season, the uh, Roy siblings got maneuvered out of the company, uh, there was a sort of a strange alliance formed uh, between Logan Roy and some of the other characters. And and I imagine that the uh, fourth season picks up where that left off. Yeah, it does. And yet it's strangely, um, you know, one, one of the things that they're taking from The Sopranos, for instance, is that, you know, what separates this show from a regular TV show is the fact that um, some huge change will happen. And then we were all waiting for the next season to figure out how they're going to deal with that. Um, you know, in the Sopranos, it was the death of big pussy, um, in, you know, or the death of Adriana here. It's, oh my God, you know, the, 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 uh, the Roy offspring have banded together and have left, um, uh, you know, their father, um, and are in league against him. And yet, um, I have to say that um, I'm a little bit underwhelmed by the first episode. Um, it sort of feels like business as usual. They've always been at each other's throats. Um, they're just and, quipping, they're just quipping along, doing soft exactly. trail. Yeah. yeah, same old, same old. Um, yeah. You know, originally the episode. You know, originally the series was set up. Um, you know, it's called Succession, and the question that's being asked is which of the children are going to take over the media empire, which yeah. is you know, loosely based on the Murdochs. And the very first episode, Logan Roy has a stroke, so there's a sense that his death is imminent and that he's got to hand over the reins of his empire to the kids. But then at some point, um, that the fact that he had a stroke, season one, seems to have been forgotten about. He seems very hale and hearty. Uh, it doesn't seem as though he's ever going to let go of the reins of this company. And the first episode of the fourth season is another birthday party. Um, the first, the first season of the first, the first episode of the first season 
was his birthday party in which he had a stroke. So now they're having another birthday party. Um, and because the kids aren't there, um, there's a sense that everyone is, uh, you know, that he's among a bunch of sharks. He doesn't quite trust anyone in the room, uh, except for his new uh, friend, assistant advisor, Carrie, who is a woman who, and they've taken a page from Mad Men, where this extra or this this person who is sort of lurking in the background is one of his assistants has sort of emerged very gradually over the years and has become, uh, is now carrying his baby and has become sort of powerful within the company. Well, it's funny, you mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned the Sopranos and Mad Men in, in, in a couple of minutes and, you know, succession kind of occupies that niche in the culture, right? It's the, the yes. quality weekly drama that all the smart people watch to feel smart, right? Right. That's kind of where, it, and and it is. I mean, it's really good. Look, it, it is it is a a classic high end TV show for uh, for the cognoscenti. There's no question about it. It's very well done. It's very well written. It's very well acted. It's got a lot of fun status details about the um the play the playgrounds of the rich, the global playground of the rich. I mean, it, it spares no expense. Uh, but you right. know, you mentioned when we were chatting on the internet about this. Um, you mentioned that you're, you know, you're kind of tired of it. You find you kind of feel like it, it's run its course, and that it might even be a little overrated. Yeah, I mean, initially I loved it, and I remember everyone around me hating it because you know the characters aren't likable. Um, you know, they're they're too dark, and I that's what I loved about it. But I find that if you do not care, you know, because you don't quite care about these characters. Um, it does eventually feel on season four as though, well, you know, like they're just kind of going through the motions of being at each other's throats. And unless they step things up, it's really hard to get involved by season four. I feel the first three seasons were fantastic, but right now I'm kind of waiting for something a little better. Um, they've brought back uh, Nan Pierce, who... Um, Holly Hunter character? No, not Holly Hunter. Um, Cherry Jones. Oh yeah, uh, yes, yes, he's right. kind of like a the MSN, uh, the liberal, the liberal to uh, Logan Roy. She's based on you know a Sulzberger or you know the Bancroft family who sold yeah. the Murdochs, the Wall Street Journal, and she's you know one of these old moneyed people who is you know very uncomfortable around the subject of money, but you know needs it, and. Um, and and there's sort of the sense that like oh the you know PGM her media empire is up for sale as it was in episode in in season two, and it's like well why is that still up for sale why is this still being discussed? Yeah. Um, and what happens is she it looks as though she may have played both factions. They get into a bidding war on who can uh, buy PGM. Uh, and the it turns out that the Logan children are horrible negotiators. Um, even I know that one of the first rules of you know negotiations is do not negotiate with yourself. And they keep upping their price without even being prompted. And they end up spending ten billion dollars on this empire. Um, and Logan Roy was was only prepared to go up to six. So they win, but it's a pyrrhic victory because apparently all the cash they have has gone into securing this outdated media empire and it's not very clear if any of them have the brains to take to run this it, to run it into the 21st century exactly right well the here's first, the, well here's yeah. the thing so succession was the first through the gate of our current sort of eat the rich shows right you have well eat the rich cultural products you have the white lotus you have 
the menu. You've got Triangle of Sadness. There's a bunch of other um, shows that talk about how horrible uh, we we love watching the rich, um, you know, do battle. I guess and Succession right. was was the first, but it doesn't feel to you like a little um, because there are all these other products out there. Does this feel, start to feel a little um, stale, maybe? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they do this very, very well. Um, they really do capture that sense of uh, entitlement, the way that the sets are designed. I mean, these these homes are very luxurious, but they feel very impersonal and cold. Um, and there's a lot of space. Um, and they don't really have time to really furnish them. So they seem to be uh, created by designers. Um, they get this thing, you know, they get this, they get this right. And they continue to do this very well, uh, in this, in this season. And yet it's like, okay, well, we've, we've had three seasons of this. Is something else going to happen? Well, probably not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what, what are they, you know, I mean, some point a a key care, there will be a key betrayal that kind of closes it all out. Um, maybe Logan Roy will die. Uh, something something will happen. You know, the one thing I will say about Succession is that it does have the intelligence and grace to end itself. Like this is it. Yes. Four yes. seasons. Four seasons is short for a premium drama. I mean, the Sopranos. Exactly. The Sopranos overstayed its welcome by several years. I would I would argue that Mad Men, to some extent, also overstayed its welcome by several seasons. And those are the shows that this sort of most closely resembles in sort of its DNA. So, uh, you know, succession has, um, it's, it's ending, which nothing ever ends in our culture. So there there is that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I am looking out for, however, is there's this funny bit where Connor Roy, who's the oldest son, who's kind of out of the action because he was, um, the son of a different mother. Um, there are the three children, uh, Kendall, Shiv and Roman who are really sort of in play, but then there's this older kid who's kind of an underachiever. Uh, played by Alan Ruck, um, and he's running for president. And he's it's still running. Of, he's still running for president. He's still running for president. And the joke is that he's going to um, win. He's gonna... He is actually no, no, no. He's he's at one percent. Oh, but he's worried that he may slip below one percent um, because this whole the the race is essentially you know about building his self-esteem. Yeah. Um, so if he can get one percent of the vote, then he's you know it's a done deal, and he can you know have a YouTube channel or a podcast or something. Yeah. Like he's that. kind of a funny, like he's kind of like a, um, like a Jordan Peterson, like character. He's, he's like a, uh, he's like a libertarian really is what it comes right, to. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he's and, not like, and he's, he's not like a far right wing character. Right. And he seems to have this every man appeal. And yet, you know, he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Um, and then the joke that he is at 1%, he is a one percenter, you know what I mean? It's, but right. um, they're treating it in the first episode as though he's very insignificant. And then I do wonder if that is, um, you know, a very coy way for the show to say, oh, you know, to discount this person, but who knows what could happen the way that we all discounted Trump in 2016. So I'm kind That's of, my Trump, Trump was never at 1%. Exactly. Yeah, no, but Not he was, close. there was this, uh, you know, who knows what could happen here because it seemed to have been written off last season, but it's back. So all right. that's wondering is, is that going to be the turnaround that um, that's going to happen for the rest of the season? The smart money's on Cousin Greg to win it all. That's, oh, that's yeah. Right. Yeah, I love Cousin Greg. You know, there's no, there seems to be no question that he's, like, he's just waiting. He's just exactly. waiting for his chance. He's not, he, he, he's, he, he, he's, uh, he's dumb as a fox. 
Oh yeah. He knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. All right. Well, succession is, uh, even though Matthew and I might have some reservations about succession season, oh, four, we're, watching. We're, yeah. we're still talking about it. We're still laying odds on who's going to win. So we're going to watch it all the way through. We're going to active. My wife and I are going to activate HBO any day now within the next, like, within please, the next couple of weeks. Right. And, and, and Barry's coming back. So you got it. You know, I am, I am, I, it cannot be ignored. I'm the editor of book and film globe. How can I not watch succession? Exactly. Yeah. It's a write off. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Everything's a write-off. All right, Matthew Ehrlich, thank you so much. We'll talk to you. Thank you. All right, thanks, Matthew Ehrlich. The fourth and final season of Succession is now airing on HBO Max Discovery or whatever they're calling that streaming service nowadays. Also, thanks to Jim Arndorfer for talking to me about Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, Jim is a paladin of note. And also thanks to Jamie Mason for stopping in to talk to me about the current sensitivity reader bodlerizing of Agatha Christie that's going on. We should all be careful. We should all be careful. The sensitivity readers are out there and they are they are reading us sensitively and they are editing us and they are censoring us. And we must stop this process before it is too late. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe www.bookandfilmglobe.com We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We will talk to you next week. Original Production